Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other clothes, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Mary stood outside near the tomb crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white seated where the body of Jesus had been, one of the women, one of at one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, "Woman, why are you crying?" She replied, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. As soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I haven't yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them what he said to her. The word of the Lord. So many of you uh, were able to join us on Good Friday, and I read um, the quote from Frederick Beekner that has been so descriptive of uh, our, our past year. He says, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. After I read that on Friday, I listed a laundry list of ways that that has been true this year. The terrible of isolation and death. So much death. Of cynicism and nihilism and of bodies being objectified and devalued and in some cases killed of these giant forces of terrible nationalism white supremacy of things inside of our families bad doctors trip visits with malignant scans and as we stood in the garden there was you know 
local gun violence just this past week uh, north of us in the cemetery. Of the terrible of this time when so many uh, experience intimacy in being together in our households. But if you're in the household of an abuser, it's uh, a terrible time to be in close quarters of terror, of addiction, of kids at the border and prisoners in cells of backs against the walls and no possible end in sight, no way that things could get better. All of these terrible things have happened. On Good Friday, the terrible is right in your face. A bloody death is terrible. Full stop. And it's especially terrible when it's someone who held promise. Who might be the savior. Before we have the benefit of hindsight, which is always 2020, our vision has to first be obscured by the tears of loss. A lost friend. A lost hope. Many of us have experienced much loss. And then, on the first day of the week, while it was yet still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb of Jesus and saw that the stone had been rolled away. Something beautiful had happened. But it was not recognized as such just yet. She says, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they've put him. That's a reasonable assessment of the situation. So Peter took off. He was at a full sprint, but he still got beat in a foot race. You know, this was not Peter's week. Like, things were not going well this week for The Rock. And he looked in and he saw the terrible grave clothes that had been carefully prepared for Jesus. And they were lying empty, carefully folded up. The guest had checked out. The inn had plenty of room now because it was vacant. And so in the scripture story that Betty Jean just read, there's this weird in-between. This place where the disciples believe, but they don't yet understand what's going on. They believe that something is amiss, that the grave is not holding their friend, their teacher, their Lord, but they don't yet know why or how. Their terrible has been upset, but they don't yet fully know the beautiful. Maybe this is where you are today, in some sort of in-between. Maybe that's where we all are to some extent, faith-seeking understanding. So then the disciples went back. In short, they left, which is a cruel and terrible parallel to two nights prior when Jesus' closest disciples, well, his closest male disciples, deserted him. And he died alone and abandoned and socially distanced outside of the gates of Jerusalem. 
except for the women. They stayed with him. They wept for him. They didn't run away from the terrible. And now Mary Magdalene remained too, also in this in-between, but actively searching, searching through tears. <laughs> you know, when you lose something that's really valuable and you're looking for it and you're looking is so in vain because you have tears in your eyes and so you're not in your best form to find it, that's where Mary is right now. But her vision wasn't obscured by tears. It was augmented. She saw angels in white and they asked, why are you crying? And Mary answers, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I want to go. I want to, I want to receive this body. This is an even further traumatizing development for Mary. Even her grief is, dist is disturbed. Can't she at least have that? But then she meets the gardener, or so she thought. This grave gardener was someone charged with making beautiful in the midst of the terrible. That's the job description for someone who keeps gardens in a cemetery, making something beautiful out of the terrible. This person was one well acquainted with tears. Remember that center point of John's gospel, the verse that everyone fought for in sword drills in John? Jesus wept. That's the center point of the gospel. This, this one is well acquainted with tears, well acquainted with death and bodies and dirt. This was a man of constant sorrow, but also a man with a green thumb. This was a constant gardener. And then she is called by name. Mary. She's, she's known. She's known in her grief and she's known in her confusion and she's known in her faithfulness and she's known in her fear. In the middle of the most terrible season of Mary's life, she meets the beautiful one face to face in the morning on the first day of the week while it was still dark in a garden that she thought was a grave. So she cries out, teacher, and this is, this is smart, because she's being taught about the terrible and the beautiful. She is in that moment being schooled in how her reality, how all reality, how our reality is now being shaped by this resurrection event, once and for all. She mustn't be afraid because fear and sin and death along with it has been cast out by perfect love. So she's receiving a lesson which she mustn't forget and can't keep to herself. She must go and tell, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I read just a couple days ago for Good Friday, Esau Macaulay, who's a professor um, of New Testament, 
wrote in the New York Times of all places uh, about about this dynamic that's happening right now. And he wrote, the terrifying prospect of Easter, terrifying, the terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God, the unending reservoir of forgiveness and an abundance of love. It would make them seem like fools who could believe such a thing? And friends, that's exactly what we're gathered here, these tiles on screens, to believe. This foolishness. The foolishness of the cross and the foolishness of an empty tomb. But even though the beautiful has come, the terrible is not erased. Let's not get this wrong. Let's not... Um, say that that is what I'm advocating or, or advising, that, that since the beautiful comes, the terrible is gone. The terrible is not completely forgotten. Jesus is known by his scars. And even though Holy Week has all these amazing swirl of symbols happening, like Palm Sunday's palms, which are, which are revolutionary, or the donkey, which is like royalty and this messianic expectation, the basin and the towel of Maundy Thursday or the empty tomb of Easter. We could have picked up each and every one of these symbols as our primary identifying symbol, but the terrible cross remains the defining icon of the church. I was recently taught this by Simeon, who's three, when Whenever he sees a cross, when we're driving by one or you draw one on a page, he calls it the church sign is the cross. And I think that's, that's a whole sermon. That's a whole word. And it must be. The cross must be our sign. The cross must stay in our memory. It has to be in front of our eyes at all times. Because there is no Easter, there is no vindication, there is no victory without Jesus' magnificent defeat. While the terrible is so easy to come by in this world, in this season, in our lives, and even in our hearts, the beautiful has the last word. That's the good news. The terrible is easy to come by, but the beautiful has the last word in this world. Throughout this past year, every time I've seen my friend James Charles, and a lot of y'all know James Charles, uh, a.k.a. Sugar Man, um, every time I've seen James, he tells me the same thing every time. I know exactly what he's going to say before he says it. And maybe he said this to, to some of y'all. He says... I just want things to go back to normal. I just want things to go back to normal. Every single time, and, it, and it's so sad every time he says it, and I, I feel that with him. How destabilized, how shook, how scared, how tired, how sad this all has been. But trust, <laughs> there is no going back to normal. It doesn't exist anymore. There is no going back. There is only a new normal. 
is a new normal that is filled with scars and joys and the knowledge of how God has been with us. How God has been for us. How God has been close to us, even when we've been behind closed doors with locks and six feet apart and all of these measures, God has been near to us. We celebrate that every week on Zoom when we ask God to make our tables that we eat at, that we sit at, that we study at, that we fight over, and we ask God to make those tables Jesus's table to feed us. God is with us. God has broken into our world to heal and to raise us. And God is continuing to work in our midst, under our nose. Maybe unbeknownst to us, or maybe we're misidentifying or misdiagnosing how God is working. We think it's a gardener. But God is bringing new life and new hope. Normal is no longer big enough or strong enough to hold all of this beautiful and terrible. To go back to normal is to go back to Egypt. It's to go back to grave clothes. It's to forget. Normal is for those who benefit from the status quo or who can at least stomach it for the sake of stability. Easter's not normal, but it is the new normal. The empty grave, this resurrection reality, is the place of new creation. Full of beautiful and terrible and everything in between, abundant and overflowing life. I've come to give life and life to the full. It is a garden where there once was a grave. It is the beginning where there was only a dead end. Jesus is risen. Hallelujah. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I give you thanks for this challenge of the new normal. Uh, left to our own devices, we're just looking to snap back to something that we know, even if it's not that great, or even if it doesn't live into your fullness. You've expanded our horizons, our world. You've dropped the floor and raised the ceiling and um, help us live in this spaciousness of your grace and your mercy and your power to raise even dead things to new life. Thanks for this community uh, where we experiment and um, <laughs> learn what resurrection looks like in a neighborhood, in homes, with friends. Thanks for being in our midst. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.